Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And now, if you'll turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, we continue our in-depth study of the book of Exodus today. We are in chapter 5. So turn to Exodus chapter 5, and I welcome those who are in the FLC to do the very same as well as those tuning in from uh, around all points, uh, near and far. We hope that you turn with us in your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Listen to these words. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then he said, The Lord of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he'll fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, now there are, they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give people straw to make bricks as before, as, and let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy That's why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon them. Then they will labor at it and will pay no attention to deceptive words. This is the reading of the sacred and provocative and disturbing and unsettling Word of the living God. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. God, in this moment, we do pause as your worshipers to consider why we are here. We we recognize that we could be in a number of places, but we have chosen for some reason to be here in the company of one another, seeking after you. Here we have opened the word, and it's teeming with possibility of truth and 
transformation. And yet we confess to you, Lord, as your worshipers, we confess that we can be so distracted by other work that we barely give you the kind of attention that you require for the transformation of the mind and heart. But not now. For this moment, in this moment here, we pray that your spirit would move in people and move in our minds and hearts in such a way that we really do hear you. That we hear more than just this, the, the words of one man or the reading of black ink on a white page. But we pray, Lord, that we would hear your spirit speak to us even now. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we begin our fourth part in this ongoing series in Exodus, I wonder if we might begin with a little bit of a word challenge. Can you quietly to yourself just think, what does this phrase say to you? Let's go ahead and take a peek. Don't blurt it out. Don't, don't let your neighbor hear. But how do you read that phrase? Do you read it, God is nowhere? Or do you read it as God is now here? Fact is, it all depends on how you read it, right? And like the spiritual journey that we are all making, it really does matter how we read our lives. That will determine whether it is that we think that God is nowhere or that God is, is actually really, really now here. And so today, as we move into this study, if you have come here today and for some reason you have experienced an encounter with the divine this week and you recognize, you know, God really is now here and you're here to somehow do something about that. You're here to respond to it. Well, fantastic. But if you're here today and you've gone through a thing and it has caused you to believe that there is no other way to read that nor your own life than God is nowhere. I just want you to hang on for a little bit. Because the story that we just read, the sermon that I'm about to preach, the, the part of this saga where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 5 has everything to do with how we read our lives. And how we read our lives will determine whether we see that God is nowhere or God really is now here. To do that, I want to talk about three things today. I want us to talk about dangerous worship, busy work, and deus absconditus. Dangerous worship, busy work, and deus absconditus. First, first dangerous worship. So the text that we just read a moment ago, make no mistake about it, we are now in the part of the story of Exodus where the let my people goes begin. And this is the first of many speeches that Moses will make to Pharaoh, but I want us to be very clear from the very beginning why it is that he is demanding that Pharaoh let the people go. It's not simply so that they could be free. It's not simply because they were living in an unjust system and it was time for God, the great liberator, to set God's people free. All of that is spectacularly true, but there is a particular reason 
And the text articulates that in verse number one. Moses says to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. So that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, that's not just any festival. That's worship. In other words, a festival, when you see that word, I want you to think in terms of an extended period of worship. Moses is not asking Pharaoh to let them go through a county fair. There will not be, you know, merry-go-rounds and corn dogs and so forth. This is a festival of worship, and we know this because every time Moses goes back to Pharaoh to say, you know, you need to let our people go, it is always, comma, so that my people can worship. In chapter 8, verse 1, this is what Moses says, let my people go so they may worship me. In chapter 9, verse 1, let my people go so that they may worship me. Make no mistake about it. Here we are in the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, and all 15 of those first chapters are all about liberation. They're all about getting set free. They're all about getting out of Dodge, right? But it's important to remember that the reason they are being sent out of Dodge is so that they may worship. So what's the big deal? Why would Pharaoh be so threatened by the, the request to let his people go and worship for a little while? In fact, it's not even that big of a worship uh, request. It's three days. Moses says, can we have three? Just three-day journey. See, when you and I, those of us who may be Christians, when we read into this text and we hear three days, see, you and I ought to kind of uh, bubble up with a little joy inside because you and I both know that much can happen in three days. Am I right? (laughs) So there is this call that all we need is three days because God does great things within three days, does he not? So he says, well, three days, but yet even though it's a small request, he denies them. So why be so threatened? And it's because of this. Worship is a dangerous enterprise. Worship is a dangerous enterprise. And I'm not talking about just any old worship because sometimes you can come into here and never even worship. I mean, you can hear me here on a Sunday morning and never worship. It is all about the mind and heart. It's all about being deliberately present in the moment, is it not? I'm talking about if you come to the place where whether it's Sunday morning or at any point, you come to the place where you fix your mind's attention and your heart's affection on the only one worthy of either of those two things, something dangerous happens. There is a transformation that happens in the mind and in the heart that results in a transformation in the way that we exist in the world. That's true worship. When you and I gather in here and consider Christ... And the work of Christ upon the cross, when you and I come in here any given Sunday and we talk about the mercy, the compassion, the welcome, the love, the grace, the reconciliation of Jesus, here's what happens. With our minds fixed on those things, we begin to take on something of the character of those things. When you worship, you take on the character of the one who is the object of your worship. And so if the one that we are coming to worship is, a, is a, a God who sets people free, who desires justice and grace and compassion in the world, reconciled relationships, peace, right? 
then we will come in here and if we have meant anything that we have said or sung or, or believed or affirmed, if we have meant any of it, then we cannot leave this place in the same way that we came. We can't leave as angry or as bitter or as resentful. We can't leave as hopeless as we may have been or felt when we came in this place because in worship, you fix your eyes on the one who allows you to see your existence in a brand new way. And Pharaoh knew it. Pharaoh knew that the moment he gives them even three days, two days, even if he gives them one day to be free enough to go worship, they, he knows it's not just about singing songs and listening to preachers. Pharaoh knew that worship is a dangerous enterprise because they will gather together and they will sing songs and they will hear sermons, yes, but it will be to provoke something in them that changes he knows he'll never get them back. Do you realize that the shaping power, oh, the theological shaping power of worship has such a power that it has the possibility of threatening the politics of empire then and everywhere all time. And no matter where you are, if we're talking about uh, ancient Egypt, or you're talking about worshiping in a village in Ethiopia, or you're talking about a cathedral in Europe, or 6910 McGinnis Ferry Road, the truth of the matter is you and I and all humans are part of some tribe or clan or state or nation or empire, and participating in any of those things that we are a part of, it comes with expectations, right? It comes with a certain expectation about how we live and move and groove and be in this world, how we exist. But when we go into worship, it's dangerous because we catch a glimpse of our existence the way God hopes it might be. And that can put us sometimes in stark contrast with the world around us in which we are doing our lives. So it leads me to a question. Can I just ask you the question I ask myself from time to time? How dangerous is your worship? How dangerous is your worship? Do we say or sing or think or feel or affirm or celebrate anything in here on any given Sunday that does anything other than reaffirm what we already think about God, how we already have ordered our lives, or is there a danger element to what happens when we gather here? We put ourselves before the presence of the Spirit who is constantly up to something to transform the heart. When was worship dangerous for you? See, Pharaoh knew that worship had the capacity to call and to question the legitimacy of his authority on earth. So he had to do something about it. Which leads us to busy work. Busy work. Now, when I was a kid, I hated busy work. And I know those of you who are teachers tell me that it's an invaluable part of close infantry training. I know that it requires busy work when your class finishes early in order to keep some semblance of control. You, you got to do some busy work. I understand there are some things you got to, some busy work to keep the kids from crawling up the walls. I get that. I get it. But when Pharaoh instituted busy work with the Hebrews, you know what he was up to? 
He was up to doing something that kept them from who they were intended to be. So he takes the straw out of the process. Usually the empire, the system, the mechanism of control for Pharaoh provided straw for the slaves. Now, the, the, the brick-making process is a relatively simple process, though it's back-breaking, right? Here's a little video clip of it. It's, it's back-breaking work all day long. You have to get the right composition, uh, a combination of mud and straw, which is a binding element, and sometimes even manure, and then use those things to pack them into uh, the shapes of bricks. And sometimes they'll sit out for a good 15 hours to dry, and afterwards, they'll, they'll be burned or perhaps fired in some kind of an oven so that they, they harden. Taking the straw out of the process, well, it's impossible. You have to have straw, and Pharaoh knew that. So Pharaoh said, here's how I'm going to change the system. You still require straw, and you still have to say, have the same amount of bricks purchased or made every day, but we're not going to provide your straw. You have to go collect it for yourself. So in reaction to Moses and Aaron making a request for a three-day hiatus so they can go worship, Pharaoh institutes greater systemic oppression. Now, you must go find your own straw, but you cannot slack in the number of bricks that you produce. Well, that creates a problem. The busy work that he creates is one thing. The motive behind why he creates the busy work is another. In fact, we read it in this verse here. He says, let heavier work, verse 9, let heavier work be laid on them. Then when they labor at it and pay no attention to this, then they will labor at it and pay no attention to the deception of words. That's his motive. Why make it harder on them? Not just to be cruel, but so that they are distracted from what he calls deceptive words do you know what words he's talking about the words of worship because when you and i enter into worship well these these words that we use they're deliberate they're they're not by accident we shape and and form the words that we use in worship the liturgy of worship we form them in order to have a shaping impact on that hour right Shaping impact to make you aware that if you're enslaved, you can be free. If you have no hope, you can have hope. If you are buried in sin, you can be raised to new life with Jesus Christ. These words, see, are words of life. And yet Pharaoh knows that they're words that would upset his authority and the structures of power that he's put in the empire. So he calls them deceptive words. He creates busy work. So they can't hear the words that bring life in worship. And it brings me to this thought. You don't have to be living in ancient Egypt to be enslaved by the brick-making mind. You don't have to be living in ancient Egypt to be enslaved by the brick-making mind. The brick-making mind is being committed to any kind of work that keeps you from your primary, most important work of your life, which is the pursuit of knowing and being known by your maker. So you and I, we may not live in, uh, in any kind of recognizably oppressive empire like Egypt or the other empires we talk about, but there is an empire that oppresses us, and it's right now, and it's right here, and it's, it's subversive because it's invisible. We don't always acknowledge it because the empire that is most threatening to you and to me is the empire of unbridled consumerism. And because, 
Because we have been groomed from the time we are children to think that our worth and our value, our significance, our place in this life has something to do with what we acquire and achieve and accumulate, how we climb and contend and compete and compare our lives with one another, then we're going to just run with an insatiable thirst toward getting more and more and more stuff. I just got to tell you, more is not better, more is just more. More is not better, more is just more. But the trouble is you and I can be enslaved by the brick-making mind because when we are committed to the pursuit of winning and achieving and climbing without being bridled in the mind, you and I are just as enslaved by the brick-making mind as our ancient Hebrew sisters and brothers because it is whatever work keeps you from the work of worship is what enslaves you. Do you know the irony of this whole thing? So there is a word that we use for worship. It's liturgy. You know, your order of worship is a liturgy. Some churches that are a little bit more liturgical than others, there's a lot more reading, a lot more uh, responsive readings and liturgies and so forth. But liturgy is a word that comes from liturgia. Do you know what liturgia literally means? It literally means the service or work of the people. Do you know that the primary work, the the primary vocation of humankind, the number one job of humankind is worship, is to adore and magnify the one who gives us life and sustains our life. And any work that keeps you from that primary vocation of loving and adoring and seeking after the one who has made you, that work is not from God, it is from Pharaoh. And we, we are kept from worship all the time. And I'm not even just talking about Sunday mornings because I'm not going to beat up at people if they have to work on Sunday mornings because, you know, I'm one of those guys. I work on Sunday mornings, right? But I will tell you that I'm also one of those guys, just like all of us here, who we can work at keeping up so many parts of our lives that it ultimately, on a daily basis, could keep us from the one primary work that we were put here to perform, which is the worship of a loving God. So it's time to to call out a lie, and the lie in our culture, our society. See, this is what's dangerous about worship. It's what's dangerous about worship. The lie is we teach our kids, yeah, if if you study really hard, if you work, keyword, at at your grade, you can get 30 AP courses next month. And then if you get 30 AP courses this year, then you, you can go to this college, and this college is your only pathway to success because there you can get this particular degree, which will land you this particular kind of career, which will land you these particular zeros after your salary, which allows you to purchase these things and grab that stuff and accumulate the other. And we think that somehow that's the finish line. But guess what? That's not the finish line. Because just if you are fortunate enough, if you're privileged enough to get to the place where you, you work your way to having, well, guess what now? Now it even takes work to play. It takes work to, to, keep, to keep up with it and fix it and repair it and visit it and make time for it. And all of a sudden, this work that we think is so worthy has kept us away from the only one worthy work that is our primary vocation, knowing 
and loving God. It's all busy work. And do you know who knew about it more than anybody else was middle management? Middle management, the taskmasters and the supervisors in this story. So Pharaoh appoints some taskmasters. These are Egyptian dudes, and they appoint uh, supervisors who are Hebrews. And they understand that the production has to keep up, and now it's going to be harder because they have to gather their straw, and they begin to fail. And as a result, the taskmasters begin to beat, literally beat, the supervisors, and they're both just middle management. They're both just trying to make it happen, which raises a significant dynamic in my heart, my mind, when I read this passage. The truth is, the supervisors were in a unique place that I want to call linchpin leadership. See, they understood what was required of Pharaoh, but they also knew how it felt to be a Hebrew. Have you ever been stuck between two places and you understood what was needed in both? It's linchpin leaders that this world needs. The truth is, this world, and I may even venture to say your family, could use a linchpin person who stands between the one who calls the other uncle too liberal and the one who calls that other aunt too conservative. Maybe you need to be a linchpin lover of your family. See, linchpin leaders are those who stand in the gap between the two. I don't know, in some place around Matthew 5, I heard some dude who used to make a living out of carpentry say they're called peacemakers. Peacemakers who stand between warring parties. I, I remember in 2 Corinthians, we preach this text on Easter. We hear these words, all this is from God who reconciled. Watch, are you seeing what I'm doing here with the hands? This is the watch, see, with the two things coming together, right? All this is from God who, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, but watch, has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which means you are placed somewhere in your life to be a linchpin leader, to stand like a supervisor between Pharaoh and those who are oppressed. I think the church of the 21st century must learn to live up to its identity as peacemakers and be for this world linchpin lovers of humankind. So it raises all kinds of questions. It raises questions like, in that whole scenario, where is God in all this? Because so far, we've not heard God speak one time. Which leads us to the third and final movement of our time together. Deus absconditus. Deus absconditus. So the taskmasters and the supervisors come to Pharaoh and they say, look, this is really too hard. You really need to kind of dial this back. And Pharaoh says, nope. And they leave. And as they leave, they confront Moses and Aaron, these taskmasters and supervisors. And they see Moses and Aaron and they know that they're the ones who started this whole problem. And so they address them there in verse 20. As they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron who were waiting to meet them. They said to them, the Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor. I love that phrase. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Supervisors come out and they blame Moses and Aaron. They say, where, where, where you been? This whole thing, you put us in bad odor. In other words, this whole thing stinks. This whole thing, standing in the middle because they're not listening to him and he's not listening to them. And I don't know if 
That's Thanksgiving for any of your families. But that's how it works sometimes in Egypt and beyond. That sometimes they're not listening to each other and this whole thing stinks. And the reason Moses doesn't reply, doesn't say anything to the supervisors, is because he knows it's true. He knows it's true. It stinks. So we pick up the story in verse 22 and then we find Moses. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. Emphasis added. Oh, Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. In other words, he turns to God. Interesting turn of phrase there. Remember the last time Moses turned toward the Lord was when he turned aside to see this burning bush You can turn to God and be drawn, remember, but just like fire, it could also repel you. This time, he turns to God and says, where were you on that one? This whole thing stinks. And you told me that you would be with me because when you called me to do this thing, I said, no, I'm really not qualified. I'm really, I don't have the time, I'm not really. And you said, no, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I'll be with you. It's all good. And you were nowhere. On the one hand, I love this passage because it gives the reader permission to be honest with God. Have you ever been in a place where you felt betrayed by God? Ever been in a place where you opened up your life and you said, okay, yeah, I'll risk it. What have I got to lose? I'm going to risk saying yes to this thing that you're you're calling me to. And then you experience what feels like abandonment. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had a phrase for it, deus absconditus, the God who is hidden. Have you ever felt like you were, now I'm not calling into question your faith. I'm not calling into question whether or not you love the Lord. I'm talking about in the love of the Lord that you have for him as it ever felt like he's been a long way away. Deus absconditus. And yet, just like the the opening phrase that I shared with you, the God is nowhere or God is now here, little wordplay, it is all about how you read the story. Because Moses, in the middle of this chapter, Moses doesn't hear or see God anywhere because God doesn't speak. Indeed, he really never even speaks in that whole section. But you and I have the benefit of knowing not only how the story begins, but also how the story ends. And we know that if you turn the page, just one page back to the end of chapter 4, there is a sneaky little verse that puts everything in perspective. And this is what it says. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Hmm. I will harden Pharaoh's heart heart which raises all kinds of theological problems doesn't it why would God harden a person but the truth is it's there to remind us that even when Moses could not trace the presence of God he was at work hardening the heart of Pharaoh because Pharaoh's heart had to be hardened enough to eventually break later and the people who were enslaved had to be weary enough so that they would be willing to entertain the possibility of sneaking out at night. 
What if God is up to something in your life and you can't see it? Does that change the fact that God is up to something in your life or does that just point out the fact that you can't see it? Graham Greene put it this way. You cannot conceive nor I of the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Romans 8 says that in all things God is at work right god is working for good for those who love god and i'm just i just raised the question today as we conclude is it possible that there's a difference between god being invisible and god being absent because just because you can't see him doesn't mean that he is not there maybe today the prayer that leads your worship experience sounds something like this god i recognize something today God, I recognize, Lord, that worship ought to be dangerous. And I recognize, Lord, today that I have been seeking comfortable worship. I've been seeking uh, to have my ears tickled and with good sermons and beautiful music. But I recognize that you're up to something in me. You want to disturb something in me that transforms the way I exist in this world. And I also acknowledge that I have been so exhausted by busy work all the things that I thought mattered that in the end don't matter, and I confess to you that here are the things that I've got to let go in order to take up the primary occupation of pursuing you like crazy. And I will admit to you that there are times when I think your name is Deus Absconditus. There are times I don't want to believe it, but I, sometimes it just feels as if I do everything I can to be faithful to you, and yet I don't hear you, so today... I'm asking you in some way to remind me that just because I can't see you does not mean that you're up to something in subversive, invisible ways to free me from my enslavement. Somebody needs to pray something like that today. Let's pray, pray together. God, we do stop. We pause long enough to acknowledge that you are up to something. We, we believe that. You're always up to something, and that something is always good and full of life and freedom, liberation, hope, joy, grace. But Lord, we confess that there are so many things that keep us from seeing it or even receiving it. So today, for someone, I pray, for someone, I pray, that you would set us free. Show us what it looks like to yield our life before your saving grace. Show us what it looks like to be loved by you simply because you love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we lift all this in your name. Amen. Amen.